thank you, everyone. Uh, for those of you who are standing, there's plenty of seats in the front, so uh, don't be shy. We hate to, for you to be standing uncomfortably for over an hour. We're so excited to have our, our guest today, and as you all know, this is our final talk in the semester-long series on higher education and the new economy. Uh, we've been exposed to a range of issues, uh, maybe more problems than solutions, but hopefully today's talk will also offer some solutions as well. Um, this is sponsored by the Center for the Study of Higher Education, and I think myself as well as Steve Blanc and others, Stuart who have helped me lost a few weeks of my life trying to put this together, but we're glad that this is coming to a close and we're so glad uh, with the uh, attendance for today. Um, this is also part of a class, there's a number of masters and doctoral students in higher education who are actually transcribing the speeches, putting together some themes, summarizing uh, what's been said. So while the, the speaker physical series is coming to an end, I encourage you to come to our website just to learn a little bit more about uh, how do we integrate and how do we move forward with all that's been learned. Um, so we hope that you will contribute to the blog and uh, continue this ongoing conversation about the reshaping of uh, public higher education in the midst of the changing economy. So um, I'd like to introduce our speaker, uh, Michael Crow. He is the 16th president of the Arizona State University in 2002, and he's guiding the transformation of ASU into one of the nation's leading public metropolitan research universities an institution combining academic excellence, inclusiveness to a broad demographic and maximum societal impact. During his tenure at ASU, he has established major interdisciplinary research initiatives, as he'll be talking about today, such as the Biodesign Institute, the Global Institute of Sustainability, and more than a dozen new interdisciplinary schools, and witnessed an unprecedented research infrastructure expansion and doubling of research expenditures. He was previously Executive Vice Provost of Columbia University, where he oversaw Columbia's research, enterprise, and technology transfer <coughs> operations. A fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration and member of the Council of Foreign Relations, he's the author of books and articles analyzing research organizations, science, and technology policy. Dr. Crow received his PhD in Public Administration from the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs in, from Syracuse University in 85. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Crow. Thank you uh, for that introduction, and thank you for the invitation to be here. Uh, I thought what I would try to do today, they uh, have me pinned over by this uh, microphone right now, I'll move around a little bit, is I thought I'd uh, get everybody's juices flowing by talking a little bit about uh, designing universities to be uh, maximally impactful for the era in which we live and the challenges that lie ahead of us. Uh, what I will say is that uh, we are all a part of or connected to, or you wouldn't be sitting in the room, of a great institutional innovation that has emerged over the last 2,500 years, uh, from the Greek academies through the medieval and Middle Eastern and Indian and Chinese institutions of higher education to the, to the later European universities, to the German research universities, through the continental colleges, the colonial colleges in the United States, through the land-grant colleges and so forth, we're all a part of history, and that history is evolutionary, but at the same time non-exclusionary. And what I mean by that, and can people hear me in the back without the microphone? Okay, all right, good. So uh, I just want to sort of be clear that as you think about institutions that have evolved over time, what I mean by scale is small scale, few students, faculty working with them, two or three students working with faculty, a few people growing through time, different types of institutions, and I have no idea why this screen is moving around. They said the air conditioner or something, so I hope that's it. <laughs> no, I mean, it could be like a small, you know, like stroke or something. 
doesn't see it moving around? <laughs> and so, uh, and then the scale of the institution, uh, bigger to the right than to the left, and then what I call innovative versus conservative. Now, I don't use either word innovation or conservative pejoratively. Conservative means you have this model, that's the model you go with, and there's plenty of institutions. I was saying at lunch, I used to be a trustee at Bowdoin College. It's a fantastic school. One of my kids went there in Brunswick, Maine. I don't think it's changed much since 1792 when it was founded, and that's great, fantastic. And so they're down here in this conservative, low risk. They're, they're really interested in doing things in a certain way. The land-grant colleges, of which the University of Arizona is, Arizona's land-grant college were a fantastic innovation uh, after the Civil War. They, I went to one, I went to Iowa State as an undergraduate, fantastic institution. And then we've put this model that we're advancing at ASU out there as big in size, high in risk. And what we mean by high in risk, it means you're a little bit closer to the edge, a little bit closer to the, to the, to the problem set. None of these institutions are any better than the other. They're just different. They're positioned along this two-axis continuum just differently. Now, what does that mean? It means if you're going to go down a new way, you've got to have a reason to go down that new way. And so this has been uh, the vision of Arizona State University, at least in the, since the eight years that I've been there, but it is a vision possible at Arizona State University because of its heritage. Arizona State grew up as a teacher's college, offered no degrees until 1925 of any type. It was a small state college from 
and what we can do with them. Can we bring in a class of qualified students who took the right courses in high school, who worked hard in high school, and you all do this also at the U of A, can we bring them in? Can we be as broadly inclusive as possible when we bring them in? And from doing that, then, can we take that kid, whoever, whatever family they came from, however they got here, doesn't make any difference to us. Did they work hard? Did they get the B plus average in high school? We'll bring them in, and what can we do with them? How do you move the institution to start measuring its success based on what it produces versus who they leave out? It's a fundamentally very simple idea. And all I will say is that not every university in the United States has to do this. Not every public university has to do this, but we think that some of them do. And we think that particularly for Greater Phoenix, this teeming, you know, unbelievable city formed out of nowhere, we're not even sure why. There's like no river, no harbor, no cornfields. Like why? Well, I don't know. They're there. And so this teeming place, how do you make it work? Well, we think that the university that's built there has to be a little bit different. Now, pursuing research and discovery that benefits the public good. Now, everybody thinks that all research benefits the public good. Well, one hopes, and if only. But it means consciously. Consciously focusing on, in particular, research that focuses on the public good itself. And how do you measure that? It's really <coughs> difficult and challenging. And I think this is really important. This assuming major responsibility for social and cultural and other kinds of outcomes. Now think about that for a second. We think we're responsible at the university, but when things get messed up, like the K through 12 system, we think somebody else is responsible. So the school board, they're not too swift. It's the legislature, they're filled with geniuses. And so we blame somebody else. And there's plenty of blame to go around because the system, the K through 12 system, is performing so badly that we're only graduating just more than two-thirds of the students that enter. I saw some sobering statistics uh, in Phoenix recently, maybe in Tucson also, but I know the Phoenix numbers uh, more closely. They took every 11th grader in certain school districts and they gave them the ACT test. The ACT test does have some predictive capability, but it has predictive cap for college, but it also has predictive capability of predicted grade outcome in a freshman English class, a freshman chemistry class, a freshman math class. Certain 11th graders, all of them took the test in Phoenix. 1%. 1% could pass a freshman science class at a university. 1%. If that's not failure, I don't know what is. Now what I'm saying relative to that is you look at whether or not we're assuming responsibility for these outcomes, not enough. If you think we are, not enough, because if we were, there'd be better outcomes. We'd be producing better X, better Y, and better Z, whatever it is. Better social workers, better engineers, better teachers, better nurses, whatever it is. You have to take responsibility. So we have tried to make this the vision. Now, all this stuff going on relative to financing of public education, public higher education, I'm not going to spend much time talking about that. Because that's nothing but a manifestation of universities, in my view, having drifted from a mission of maximization of their impact. Do 
So we have three words that drive us. There's three words that we reduce this down to. One is excellence, and I'll talk to you about that. One is access. That's what we mean, academic excellence. We drive that the same way you do. Access means no one's left out for financial reasons, and we admit every qualified student. Again, we don't care how they got here. We don't care where they came from. We don't care about anything. All we care about is giving them access to the greatest faculty that we can assemble. And then the last phrase for us is impact. Impact means not just what we have we done for the betterment of knowledge production. <coughs> There's lots of institutions making contributions to that. We're trying to make certain that we have unbelievable impact in Arizona. When we have unbelievable impact in Arizona, the people of Arizona will invest large amounts of resources into our institution. And if we're having difficulty convincing them to do that now, it's because they don't know exactly why we're here. And if they don't know exactly why we're here, it's not their fault. How many citizens in Arizona have college degrees? What percentage? Anybody know? Not enough, but it's under 30%. I just want you to track that for a second. When I first came to Phoenix, I moved from Manhattan to Phoenix, and so I didn't know what Pete's fish was or anything like that, but I like Pete's fish, at least I did before I got too fat. And so, the, uh, and so I go to Pete's fish once and I try to talk to everybody. In fact, I spent, I spent weeks here before I took the job meeting with the outgoing president, Laddie Gore, every single day to get a two-week debriefing from him, and then I just drove around and talked to people in neighborhoods. And had meetings with community leaders, but then I also just went into neighborhoods, talked to people playing baseball, went to Pete's Fish, and so forth. So I'm sitting there talking to these, this family one day at Pete's Fish, and they, so we got to talking, and I said, I'm coming into this new job, I'm going to be a faculty member at ASU, and I'm going to be one of the administrators, and you know what they said to me? What's ASU? I'm like, what? <laughs> What's ASU? I taught a, uh, a reading class with my wife a second or third year that I was here, at a uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs school on, a, on an Indian reservation near Phoenix, it's fourth graders, and I took a book that happened to be connected to my name, Crow, that crow that flies up that has all the color, the rainbow crow, I don't know if anybody remembers that book, so I thought I'd use that book and kind of make a funny joke about my name and so forth. And so I asked these fourth graders, they were within, I don't know, 35 minutes of the university, not one of these fourth graders had ever heard of it. They'd never even heard of it. And so you're like, ah, something's wrong. We're not as connected maybe as we think. And so, and so this vision for us, so visions are one thing. You got to do something. And so uh, eight years ago, driven by, this is a question I got in the lunch we had just before coming over here. Um, people said, like, where, where do all these ideas come from? There's a huge literature on how to design public universities. Frank Rhodes, who was the president of Cornell University, and the, and the, which is a hybrid, public and private. He was the provost at Michigan before that. He wrote a book called Creating the Future, in which he outlined everything that he thought public universities should do. He called it his apology. Jim Duderstadt wrote a book uh, called Creating the University for the 21st Century. He was the president of the University of Michigan. I won't walk through all these books, but these are fantastic treatises on the failings of the public university design on the failings of the design. Jonathan Cole just wrote a book uh, on the great American university, just came out this spring, 
fantastic book on the history of the emergence and the impact of research universities. Clark Kerr wrote a series of, of multiple two-volume books on the history of the emergence of the University of California. I was always happy to know that the University of California at Santa Barbara started out like ASU as a teacher's and home ec college. Santa Barbara College that was forced by political maneuvers into the University of California in 1944 against the vote of the faculty at Berkeley. Somehow UC Santa Barbara got through that and now, have to, now they've become this great university that all of us would be happy to be a part of. So it all sort of works itself out, but it's an interesting history. So what I laid down in my inauguration was a series of design aspirations. Things that I laid out as challenges. And so I saw my job as an incoming faculty member and as an incoming uh, uh, academic executive. I saw my job in those roles to lay down aspirational objectives that I was hopeful that I could get the community, the faculty and the staff and the, the broader community to engage in. And so in my inaugural speech, I outlined these eight objectives, these eight aspirations. And that was eight years ago. The first, leveraging our place. Where we are, this is not common in universities. Where we are, I consider to be the single most important characteristic of the design of the institution. The cultures that make up our communities, the history through which our community evolved, the history of Arizona, the dynamics of Arizona, our closeness to Mexico, our closeness to Mexican culture, whatever, whatever the areas of place, whatever the features of place are, leverage place. The Sonoran Desert, this all makes common sense until you look at how most universities run where place is irrelevant. It also means if you're going to leverage your place, it means you're going to have to be embedded in that place. Transform society. Okay. The people of Arizona at ASU have funded at that. And there's at least 1,500 of us that have tenure. 1,500 people with lifetime appointments. It's unbelievable. 1,500 people. Maybe more. I don't remember how many we have, but we got a lot. <laughs> if you're not committed to something other than just teaching, research, and service, or if you're not certain that your teaching, research, and service will lead to this, then what are you doing? Why do the people of Arizona invest in you for your entire life? So we said, if we can work in transformative ways, let's do that. So for instance, K through 12, we have failed. Higher education has failed to produce what we need to produce to turn those numbers around. We need higher performance from all kids, from all walks of life, and from all backgrounds, all financial backgrounds. We're not getting that. That's transforming society. Value entrepreneurship. If what we produce is valuable, which it is, people, things, ideas, stuff, technologies, if what we produce is valuable, then we ought to make certain that people know how to take what we produce that's valuable and produce new social enterprises, new business enterprises, all that kind of stuff. And so you have to value entrepreneurship. And we've worked to do that, and I'll talk a little bit about that. Conduct youth-inspired research. Now, when I was at Columbia, we would debate all the time. Uh, one of my jobs along the way, I was the chief research officer of the university. One of my jobs along the way was to make sure that we helped faculty move along, and there was always this thing. So what was valued more than anything was curiosity-driven science. Fantastic. But it turned out that that then created a hierarchy. That was most valuable. Everything else was secondary. 
So what we're saying is curiosity-driven science is already in our curiosity-driven knowledge, not just have to be science. When I say science, I mean social science, I mean all areas of research. Use-inspired research meant that at ASU, we're going to put into the genetic code of ASU that equal to curiosity-driven scholarship with use-inspired scholarship, equal, in the way we design the institution. Enabling student success. When you've got 70,000 students like, like we do, if you don't focus on the individual and focus on enabling student success, then you've got, you're not going to make it. So that's why we built, for instance, a second engineering program on our Polytechnic campus, which is a learning by doing engineering curriculum for kids that have high levels of spatial and tactile intelligence who are born engineers. But they might have gone to the high school that I went to. I grew up in a, my father was an enlisted man in the Navy. I went to 17 schools before I graduated from high school, four different high schools in three states in the 10th grade alone. That's what you want to talk about, stability. Living on the floor of my stepmother's trailer for one of those, because we had no beds. And so this notion of focusing on the individual, I was a unique individual. I had a motor, but it was not very focused. We can focus on the individual and their circumstance and move them forward, so we've tried to design ways to do that. Fuse intellectual disciplines. Most places are rigid from a disciplinary perspective. Fine, that's great. And if you want to be at one of those, go there. Because at this institution, we're going to work to take those things that come together that enable students to be attracted to disciplines in new ways, to be attracted to problems in new ways, and for faculty to work on new things, and we're going to make that a part of who we are. Doesn't mean everything will be this way. It doesn't mean every unit, every department. But it does mean that we have 22 new transdisciplinary schools. And we used to have a department of sociology and anthropology and geology and political science and history and religious studies and, I don't know, a whole bunch of others. We don't have those departments anymore. We have all those faculty and we have all those degrees, but they're organized differently. We used to have in engineering, mechanical engineering, civil engineering, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. You think that kids are attracted to mechanical engineering? So now we have a school of sustainability in the built environment, a school of bio and health systems engineering school of decision engineering, a school of engineering, a school of like fantastic design whatever you want engineering. <laughs> and why are we doing that? Because we actually think that that changes the direction, the culture, the teaching, the access, the attraction, it changes everything. And I'm just giving you little slivers of examples. Socially embedded means working on the level of the street, working at the level of the problem, working at the level of the neighborhood over and over and over. The value proposition for the modern public university has been tainted by this notion of we are elitist knowledge producers who produce for some reason that will ultimately <coughs> benefit society. And while that's true, we basically think there's enough of those schools. That in Phoenix, as it's growing, that this was what we needed to do and engage globally. You can't be isolationist. And so you need to move in new directions. Now, we've made a little progress along the way. And I'm sorry to show you this flag, but that's what it looks like. <laughs> so, you know, we do have a flag. We have a logo. You know, everybody does. <laughs> so, in this model, uh, both U of A and ASU are both one of the top 100 universities as ranked by Shanghai Jiaotong University. And what's really cool about that is when 
the closest Chinese university to us is 145 positions below us. We, we really like that because then that gets them to be able to interact with us. Um, we made it in this top tier of U.S. universities. This is a, a, a rigged vote. Uh, you gain a lot of points by uh, how much you spend per student, and you gain a lot of you gain a lot of points by how many students you leave out. Uh, we're trying to spend as little as we can per student and give them the great education. We're trying to trying to leave almost no one out, uh, and so you get you get. I'm sorry about saying that, but you get sort of screwed along the way. So. Uh, Forbes magazine says we're doing okay in terms of value. We've got top 25 programs and this and this and this. I'm not going to belabor this stuff. This is important because this is something that we have focused on. ASU, if you haven't been reading, we've got some great programs, but we don't have great programs to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. We have great programs for one reason, one reason and one reason only. We have great programs so that a kid that comes from a family with $20,000 of family income or less that has a motor and a brain and work hard in high school can have access to the finest assemblage of faculty that could be put together in Greater Phoenix for them to move their life forward. That is why we do it. We do not do it for ourselves. We do it for them. And I'm going to explain to you what that means when I show you some of these numbers. So this entrepreneurial thing is that we've decided that one of the things that we'd like to do to make ourselves a little more effective is build entrepreneurism into the curriculum of not some of our schools, like business and engineering, but all of our schools. So we taught last year 10,600 students in every college that we have something about entrepreneurism and classes devoted to entrepreneurism. And guess who's taken off like wild men and women? Journalism and nursing. They can't even control them. They're like out of control. They've got centers and initiatives and funding and deals. Oh. All that kind of stuff. I'm, I've walked away from the microphone. Uh, so again, faculty. These are our three Nobel laureates, two that won the Nobel Prize while at ASU, one that we attracted, the one on the left, Lee Hartwell, who was the president of the Fred Hutch Cancer Institute. Why do these people want to be here? I will tell you that all of these individuals came to ASU because of our mission. They didn't come because it was 120 degrees in July. We hired these faculty. Not because we think we're a better university, because we hired these faculty. Not because we think that we're cool, because we have these faculty on our faculty. We hired these faculty because we want the kid that grew up in some dirt road village 50 miles from Window Rock, Arizona, who's been studying their heart out at a marginal high school not able to get to school half the week because the roads are washed out or muddy or whatever, to have access to this. And oh, by the way, they didn't get into Stanford. They didn't get into Stanford or whatever. That's why we do this. So we attract students, 9,300 freshmen last year, 3,000 from the upper 10% of their high school class, 5,300 from the upper 25% of the class. Because here's what I hear, and the reason I'm giving you this data here, in particular, the reason I'm giving you this data right here is because here's what I was told by some folks was that, by the way, if we make the university generally accessible, none of these kids will come. I'm like, oh, really? 5,300 students from the upper 25% of their high school class and the freshman class alone? Let's not worry about that anymore. So we now have the, the full cross-section. We have the students that schools would think of as elite. I mean, the students that schools would think of as elite and we have also the students that worked hard in high school. 
worked very hard in high school and are fully qualified to do university level work. We have both of them. Now, one of the things in, that we've really tried to do ourselves, do for ourselves, is to change how we measure. And these are just little indicators. So if you win so many Fulbrights, that's good. And you blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. This is all good. And so you can just assume we do all this stuff. But here's the reason I put this stuff up. We've decided that we're going to measure our success, both as an administration and as a faculty and as a university, on what did our kids do when they graduated? What did we do for them? So we started testing according to the collegiate learning assessment all freshmen two years ago. We know where they are and when they graduate, we're going to know how, they're, how they have improved in critical thinking, how they've improved in complex problem solving. We're going to know all those things about them. And we're going to know where we need to go back in and strengthen the curriculum and so forth. But we've also set ourselves a goal and objective. And I want this to sink in. We're going to be top 10 in every output indicator known to man, whatever it is, period. Top 10 Fulbrights, top 10 Marshalls, top 10 Rhodes Scholars, top 10 nurses, top 10 architects, top 10 naval officers, Peace Corps volunteers, Teach for America volunteers, whatever it is. We don't care who else is out there, that's what we're going to do. Top 10 admissions to Ivy League law schools, top 10 admissions to the best medical schools in the world, whatever the prize is. Whatever the achievement is, jobs, salaries, whatever it is, VISTA volunteers, that's how we're going to measure ourselves. Now we're top 20 in all of those right now. So we've got to go from top 20 to top 10. And we think we can do that. And that's just to give you some sense. Now we operate on a large scale. This was our graduation, but I want you to see that we produced last year 15,610 degrees, up 38% since 2002 on fewer resources. And here's how we've been doing in terms of diversity and, and ethnicity. Changes in enrollment, 37%, lots of changes, but mostly that big number at the bottom, 85% in degrees awarded in the past 10 years to minority students. But here's how to look at this. 60% increase since 03 in Pell Grant students coming to ASU. 60% increase in Pell Grant students. That's a massive increase in students from families under roughly $45,000 a year of income. 873% increase in families coming from, students coming from families with no income. We call that 20,000, 19,000 and under. We had almost none of those students. So we've restructured the university financially. We've restructured what we're doing. We're putting out significant financial aid, like that number right there at the bottom, 56% of the Arizona undergraduates receive financial aid of a certain amount. Increase in minority employees, increase in minority tenure and tenure track faculty. We like this ranking. You guys here are a well-established, mature, nationally recognized research university, medical school, ag school, and so forth. Well, we now broke in in a 29-year period, no research, and in two, actually 28 years. In 2008, NSF ranked us as one of the top 20 research universities without a medical school. We're one of eight universities in the country without a medical school or an agricultural school that had more than $300 million a year of research expenditures, those schools there and a few others. Now, why do we do this stuff? Well, I couldn't care less about the ranking. What I could care about is that the kid that comes to the university thinks and believes that they are attending a great university. 
and that there is an environment that will reflect that perceived greatness that will influence the outcome of their education so that that kid, that student, it will be as if they were able to go to one of these very high-priced, unaccessible institutions. And I say to people all the time, there's 310, the census will report this year, 310 million Americans or so. When was the last great private university built? Hmm? Yeah, 100 years. When was the last Williams College or, or uh, you know, Carleton College or Grinnell College or Oberlin College? <laughs>
It's not going to work. So let me see if I can get this video to work. Maybe we can reduce the light a little bit. This goes to an interactive website or a series of websites. You can find this at asuchallenges.com. Then you begin interacting by identifying what you perceive to be the challenges. And then a computer program then waiting the people that are interacting starts identifying the challenges as they emerge. And so this is a community link, student link, faculty link. All the challenges were derived of faculty-student interaction and community interaction. They were derived from a process that involved over 500 uh, individuals. Uh, and you get a sense of what all that means. And I'm going to show you one last minute and 30 second thing to give you a sense of scale. And then I'll open up the floor for questions. video was produced the night of the graduation and has been watched by about 900,000 people as it was virally released onto the internet, driving them both to this site and to the Challenges site in the last few months since the graduation, so just give you some sense of, of how that thing works. And so, so, this is what we're trying to do. This is where we're headed. We have, I'm giving you sort of the short version of the story of the story. Uh, but we've been working for eight years in this transformation process. We've made progress. We've had stresses and strains and challenges. Uh, you know, it goes without saying that um, we got that problem. That's reduction in funding per student. But that isn't what keeps us awake. That is not what keeps us awake at night. What keeps us awake at night is how do you do this? 
How are we doing in terms of student recruitment? How are we doing in terms of minority students and minority faculty? How are we advancing the institution? What programs are we, how many applicants do we have for the new programs that we've launched? How many students are going to the School of Human Evolution and Social Change, the School of Earth and Space Evolution, the Department of English, the programs that we moved to downtown Phoenix? So we moved three colleges to downtown Phoenix, got the city of Phoenix to invest $240 million, a private company to invest another $140 million. Those colleges are all moved, they're down there and they're prospering. Is it working? That's what we're really, that's what we're really uh, interested in. So, so I just wanted to give you a sense of what we're trying to do. We are your uh, younger sister to the north. Uh, and, uh, and so we're driven by all these forces that I've described. And so that should leave uh, some time for comments and questions. So thank you.